Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Now, as we have indicated, we're going to, for the next two months, all of January and February, speak on the subject of the second coming. We had a mistake in the bulletin. This is number one tonight, not number three, but as the bulletin states, uh, somebody couldn't read my writing or uh, hit the wrong key on the typewriter, I'm not sure which, but this is number one. We're going to be completely in the chapters in Matthew 24 and 25. All of the messages will have a basis in these two chapters. And in thinking of the subject, the second coming, we oftentimes make a mistake in calling the second coming the rapture, and they're two different events. We're not talking about the rapture. We're going to be talking about when the Lord returns, his second coming. A lot of what uh, I will be uh, talking about is going to be lecture-type in that I'm going to try to to make this series educational, there will be portions of the sermons uh, throughout the series that I hope will be inspirational, some that will be evangelistic, hopefully that we can all be drawn closer to the Lord, but the primary purpose that I'll have in mind is educational, trying to give a a good understanding as to what the Lord himself taught about his return. We will have to deal with the tribulation period, because that's a portion of it, setting up of the kingdom, uh, and, and all those things that will come out of these two chapters. If you have a red-letter edition, you will discover that these two chapters, with the exception of two or three verses, are all the words that Jesus spoke on the subject. Tonight, I'm going to give the title to this particular message simply the background. I want to set the stage for the discussion of this particular subject. I know that I cannot possibly do good justice to the subject, it would take volumes, and there are volumes written on the subject. It would take many hours of discussion, of lecture, to fully uh, deal with the subject. But I'm going to try to, to give a, at least a skimming, a synopsis as to what Jesus is actually saying. You might think eight, eight weeks, that's a long time, to eight and a half hours, that's four hours of, of actual lecture on these two chapters, but I think it's important that we spend that much time, and we could spend, I'm sure, a whole lot more, to get good benefit. I think it will be important that you are here all eight nights. If you possibly can at all, try to be present for all of them. 
Now, this evening, we're only going to deal with the first three verses of the 24th chapter. And we'll try to give you some background so that you can comprehend what's happening and, and why the questions that are being asked and what Jesus' response is. So as we begin in chapter 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. He was in the temple with his disciples, of course. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings, plural, or more than one, of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, by the way, we have left the temple at the end of verse 2. We've gone out to the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus is in that, that garden. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Let's stop there for a week. How many of you have ever been to a uh, fortune teller? Be honest. I do, two or three. Maybe a long time ago. You mean you can't remember if you ever were a fortune teller? <laughs> okay, some of you have been, right? How many of you ever had your palms read? You more? How many of you read your horoscope in the newspaper? You do that? All more do that. Well, you know, all societies have done this type thing. There have been seers, fortune tellers, mediums, uh, all of these people, palm readers, uh, and the horoscope that we have in the paper, because people want to know the future. What's going to happen? Did you know that the Bible says don't do that? Don't go to fortune tellers and seers and, and all those things. Don't attempt to find it out from all of these sources about the future. Go back to Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 9, this is the Lord talking to the Hebrew people about coming into the promised land. Deuteronomy verse, chapter 18, verse 9, And when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations, that is, of the nations that are occupying now the promised land. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. You have heard of that, 
of walking through coals, passing through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a, a necromancer. Anybody know what that one is? That is a person who attempts to commune with the dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Okay, let's stop at that point. Well, let's read two more verses. For thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God, for these nations which thou shalt possess hearken unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. Now, even though it was told the Hebrew people that they were not to seek the advice of such people, and particularly they were looking for future, what was going to happen in the future, that didn't stop them from doing it any more than it stops us from doing it. And although I suspect most of us who have done those things, and I've done the same things, uh, have done it as, as a point of fun. But we're beginning to discover that more and more and more people really base their lives on those things. Some people will not start their day until they'll check their horoscope. And some people do go to uh, palm readers or to uh, somebody who is supposed to be able to be depict, to prophesy or predict the future, uh, to find out what's going to happen. Old King Saul was one of those when Solomon, he depended on Solomon the prophet, but when he died, he was beside himself and didn't know what to do, and so he went to a witch of Endor and against the requirement of the scripture, asked the witch of Endor to call up Saul or, or Samuel, talk to Samuel, and to find out what he was supposed to do. Uh, that's uh, another story. But they have all wanted this. And here comes the apostles and says to Jesus, tell us about the future. And he does. You don't have to go to uh, the witch of Endor or to any of these other people who are servants, basically, of the devil himself. Jesus gives them the prophecy of the future. If you want to know what the future is, See what Jesus had to say, and you'll have it. He makes it very clear, I think, although we have tried to make it complicated. Now, that has a background. A little more background on a different subject. You remember that God promised, even from Abraham forward, that Israel would be a nation and a great nation, and there would be no end to the kingdom. Well, in 722, the Assyrians come down upon Israel and conquer them, and the northern ten tribes are taken into captivity. <clears throat> History tells us that those ten tribes never did show up again. 
To this day, history cannot tell what happened to the northern ten tribes of Israel. They disappeared. God knows where they are. Man just doesn't know. In 586, Babylon came down and conquered Israel again and took the two tribes, the southern tribes, into captivity. They returned eventually from captivity. And then there was the Medes and Persians that came along and conquered Israel. And then the Greeks conquered them and the Romans conquered them. All through their history, Israel has been under some foreign nation coming down and conquering them and they being subject to them. But the, the scripture promised and prophesied that they would be restored as a nation. They would be a nation forever. And so there was lots of prophecy concerning the fact that although they were now under somebody's domain, captivity, that they had a future. There would be a time when they would actually be a nation again. And I want to read some of those, and you just keep your Bible there and go with me. First of all, let's go to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 9 of this book. And we're going to go right over to Jeremiah in a moment, but go, go to Isaiah. One of the very uh, famous prophecies concerning Israel that uh, gave the people a good promise. Chapter 9 at verse 6. 6 and 7. For, and we read this at Christmas time, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We'll find it in the King James, a comma between Wonderful and Counselor. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. See it there? And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So there is a promise that the Hebrew people were holding on to that they're going to be a nation again. All right, go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Next book over. In chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteous, uh, the Lord, our righteousness. So there again is a prophecy. Go to Daniel. Just keep turning. Turn right. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44.
very uh, good statement made concerning the prophecy that Israel would always be. Verse 44 of chapter 2, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Well, those are just a few samples of the prophecy that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, are dependent on in believing that they would not always be under somebody's reign, but eventually they would become a mighty nation. And they depended on that. They were expecting that to happen. They taught it in their synagogues and in their schools. Now, there are some things about the setting up of this kingdom that uh, the Jews believed, and I'll just have to touch on these quickly. But as I mentioned these things that the Jews believed, consider about your own, your own belief, what we in the church teach today. The Jews believed that before the establishment of that kingdom of which the prophecies talked about, there would be a tribulation. Bingo, we believe that, do we not? Even the secular literature written in the days of the Old Testament depicted a time when there would be a tremendous tribulation. Secondly, they believed that there would be an Elijah-like forerunner of the Savior, the Messiah. They were expecting that type of person, and Jesus identified this Elijah-like person as John the Baptist. So we acknowledge that. Thirdly, they believed that the Messiah would appear and that he would set up his kingdom. Fourthly, they believed that there would be an alliance of nations that would align themselves against the Messiah, and that the Messiah would have to overthrow those nations in order to establish his kingdom. We'll begin to talk about an alliance of nations, and we'll talk more about that during this series of sermons. And when they inquired about his kingdom. He said, on one occasion, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight, and so on. Five, they believed that all of these opposing nations would finally be destroyed. Six, they believed Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed. Seven, they believed that all the Jews would be gathered back again to Israel already begun to take place again. Eight, they believed that Palestine would be the very center of the world, that all nations would be subject unto their Lord. Nine, they believed that there would eventually be an eternal peace established. Well, notice the parallel between the things that they believed and, and, and what we say we believe today. They believed that there was coming a Messiah that would rule their nation and make it supreme, and from Jerusalem he would control the world. So, if they believed all that, what's the problem? They rejected him when he came. What's the problem? I want you to notice what the problem is. It's a basic problem. That is, the Jew had no concept of two comings. 
They only conceived of him as coming one time. And this is the root of the problem. They did not understand that the Messiah was going to come the first time to be an offering for the sins of the world, to be a sacrifice. And that he would come the second time to establish his kingdom. They thought, even his disciples thought, that Jesus would establish his kingdom while he was there. Not, not, not think about him going away and coming back again. What they were looking for was a deliverance from the potential oppression that the uh, Jews were under. They wanted to get out from underneath foreign control. They thought that was their salvation, that a kingdom would be established, their new king born in Bethlehem would uh, exert political power, would have military force, and would overthrow the Roman government, kick them out, would control all the nations, set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem, and would begin ruling. They could not conceive of the fact that the first time he came was to be the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. When Jesus then talked about suffering and dying and resurrecting, they didn't have the slightest idea what he's talking about. It could not compute, to use modern-day terminology. They couldn't figure out why he was going to suffer, why he would have to die. Peter said, no, sorry, it will never happen to you, Lord. Remember that? The Lord had to say, get you behind me, Satan. He told them, I'm going to die. And three days later, I resurrect. They didn't understand that. And when it happened, they couldn't believe it. When they put him in the tomb, it was final as far as they were concerned. They didn't conceive that three days later, he would come out of the grave. They couldn't believe that when they went on Sunday morning to the tomb that he wasn't going to be there. They still expected his body to be present because they thought that they had put their total dependence in somebody who did not perform what they thought the Messiah was going to perform. Therefore, they were disillusioned and disappointed and downhearted, distressed, and when the two went on their home, way home to Emmaus and Jesus walked with them and they didn't recognize who he was, they were very much distraught and said to him, don't you understand what's just happened these last few days? In essence, they were saying, we had believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would reestablish his kingdom. And we buried him. It didn't happen. Jesus had to begin, even from the prophecies, to begin to tell those that husband and wife that were walking on that road what it really meant. They still had not conceived it in their own hearts. Now, a shift gears again. Do you realize 
if there's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about the church. There's no prophecy about the establishment of the church. Or the church age. Back in the book of Daniel, in the ninth chapter, when Daniel gives us his prophecy of 70 weeks concerning Israel, and I'm not going back and deal with that, but to summarize it very quickly, Daniel prophesied from a given point in history, 70 weeks of time that God would deal with his nation Israel. And that prophecy stopped at the end of 69 weeks and left one week unsettled, unsatisfied, not complete in the prophecy. The church age began at the end of the 69th week and will continue until God starts his calendar again. It's the countdown that we use at Cape Canaveral. It is one hour and 29 minutes and counting. And then they get to a point and the count stops because they have developed a problem. Then when the problem is resolved, they start the counting at that point. And they continue. And they continue until they hit another problem and it stops. And then they solve that one and start to count again at the same point where they stopped it. This is God's countdown. I preached a series of sermons a year and a half ago, maybe now, I don't know, called Countdown to Glory. There was a stop in the countdown. We're in that period between the end of the 69th week and when God starts his countdown again with Israel on the 70th week. And this is known to us as the church age. We live in it. The church was established for that period when uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, oh, you're, they say you're Elijah, come back to life, or you're one of the other prophets, or maybe you're even John the Baptist, and so on. And uh, Jesus then finally said to them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter spoke up for them. And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Build what? The church. Something not spoken of in the Old Testament. Something that is to be established and hell itself cannot overcome. We worry about the future of the church. And I suppose we ought because it certainly is not accomplishing what it's intended to accomplish. But I tell you, until Jesus returns, it will stay. Because Jesus established it. The Roman Catholics say that it was upon Peter that he established his church. Now we lose a lot in the translation and in the, the, the imagery that we might get from that particular point. But I think that Jesus was saying, Thou art Peter, which means a little rock. Pointing to Peter, Peter, you are a little rock, but 
pointing to himself, Jesus. But upon this rock, I build my church. It was not upon Peter. It was upon Jesus himself that the church was built. And we're here in that age. If you want to go over to Romans chapter 16 in a moment. Look right after Acts. I suppose now what I'm going to read, there could be some differences of opinion as to the interpretation of this particular passage, but I'm going to give it to you as I, I think it, it's, it's spoken. And I have some Bible scholars I think will back me up in this. Verse 25 of Romans, chapter 16, the last chapter. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, this is Paul speaking, according, here's the one I want you to notice, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest or made known. What is the secret that has been kept even from the beginning of the world? I think the secret that was kept was the establishment of the church. They knew nothing of it. God used this method of sending the gospel to the world in order that people might be saved. Now, I'm going to get back to the text in Matthew. In the first two verses that we read, Jesus was in the temple, chapter 24 of Matthew, and came out of the temple. And I want you to notice a very strange thing that the disciples do. As Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him, to do what? To show him the buildings of the temple. As if he had never seen them before. Why would they do such a thing? I have taken people out and showed them buildings. But when I do, it's people who haven't seen that particular building before. But Jesus has been in and out of the temple. This isn't a strange place to him. He drove money changers out of it on at least one occasion and maybe two, depending on your understanding of the scripture. He's been in there. There's where he was when he was with, as a boy, reasoned with the, the, the priests in the temple. He's been there since he was 12 years old at least. Over and over again. And here the disciples say, Lord, look at the temple. I want to suggest to you what I, what I think they were saying. Remember now what I've given you thus far. They were anticipating that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. And he's saying, they're saying to him, Lord, there's your office. There's your throne. And 
John was saying, I think I'll get that off right over there. And James said, I believe I'll have that one there on the other side. Remember how they wanted the high places in this kingdom? And their mother said, I've got a favor to ask of you. And Jesus said, what is it? Well, when you come into your kingdom, will you let my boys have the left and the right hand offices? I can imagine that they did what I have done on a number of occasions in going into building and knowing that I was going to have an office. I looked them all over to try to figure out which one was the best office and hope that I'd get that one assigned to me. I usually was disappointed, and I got one way down the corner with no windows. Can you see these boys doing that? They were saying, Jesus, you're about ready to establish your kingdom. Look at the temple. It's going to be your throne. Probably under the breath, by the way, uh, it's all right if I have that office right next to you. This was the motive of their showing him the temple. This is an awesome building. History says that the temple was made out of stone that were 40 feet long and 12 feet square. I don't know how far it is from either the door, but can you imagine that? And 12 feet across and 12 feet high. These were the stones of the temple. All in place. A magnificent building. Jesus says, you see all these things? Barely I say to you, there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. That will not be thrown down. That huge building, going to be brought down. And the disciples said, when, when is this going to happen? We're still on the earth future. Back in chapter 23 of Matthew, just one chapter back, I think is an important verse. Let's read verse 37 first to get to it, to get the background for it. When Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou hast killed the prophets, and you stoned them that are sent unto thee. And how oft would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen would gather her chickens under her wings, and you would not. And then he says, verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. In the 21st chapter of Matthew, we have the story of the cleansing of the temple when Jesus went in and drove out the money changers. And he said in that case, in the 13th verse, I think it is, you have made my house a den of thieves. He called it my house, the temple. And the way I read this particular passage now in the 23rd chapter and the 38th verse, 
He's turning the temple over to them and no longer calling it his house. It's yours now. You have desecrated it. You have destroyed its purpose. You don't honor the God whose, whose image was in it. It no longer is the house of God. It belongs to you. And I'm telling you, it's coming down. Anything that belongs to man will come down. It's only that which belongs to God that is permanent. In just a few short years after this statement, in A.D. 70, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and literally destroyed it. And the historians tell us that there was not one stone left upon another, and it looked like there had never even been a building there. They so utterly destroyed it. Their house came down. Now, we go out to the Mount of Olives. There's a little interlude between verse 2 and verse 3. Go out to the Mount of Olives after Jesus has made this marvelous statement. Seemingly impossible for that to happen. They're here on the mountain. And the disciples come unto him privately, not in public. And almost whispered to us, Lord, give us a hint. When's this going to happen? We don't know the future. What's going to be the sign of thy coming? And I want you to notice, look at that verse. What is the sign of thy coming? There is no again in the verse. What is the sign of thy coming again? No, they didn't say that. Because they didn't conceive of this coming again, you see. When is this going to happen? What are the signs? They literally were asking, what will be the sign of your manifesting yourself as king? Well, I still didn't understand him. The resurrection has now taken place, and I'll refer you to, to Acts chapter 1. By the way, from that question comes all the rest of chapter 24 and 25, his answer. He gives them the sign, and we'll deal with that in the next seven uh, nights. But... Uh, in Acts chapter 1, at verse 6, resurrection is already over. Jesus is amongst them. And they say, well, verse 36 says, And when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They still didn't know. Still had no concept of another coming. Well, he gives them the answer to the question. All of chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus' response to their question. Tell us, when will this be and what are the signs? And in the next seven times, we will talk about the signs that he gives us. And he will come again. <clears throat>
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.